you really never want either party to hold both the business and the website. Buying and selling businesses just got a lot easier. Welcome to the Web Equity Show, where thousands of successful entrepreneurs go to learn about buying, growing, and selling online businesses. Your hosts, Justin Cook and Ace Chapman, share their real-life advice, examples, and expert interviews to help you build and grow your own online portfolio. Now to your hosts, Justin and Ace. Welcome to the Web Equity Show. I'm your host, Justin Cook. And I'm here with my co-host Ace Chapman. Today we are talking website migrations and turnovers, buddy. How you doing? I am good, man. This is where we get into the nitty-gritty of making sure that you get the website, all the assets, that it's actually yours, and you don't have any of those headaches at this last crucial point that could kill the deal. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, the deal is done. I mean, your contracts might be signed, you might be them moving forward. But sometimes deals drop out in this phase, and if they do, it can be a disaster for both sides. Yeah, when it comes to getting the deal done, everybody's happy, and we're going to close, and it's looking good. But if you're unsure that something that was supposed to be transferred isn't, or an employee, or traffic isn't looking good, you know, Justin and I have both been in those situations where there's a final inspection, and there's something that doesn't quite look right. And emotions can be high at this point because you're so close to the finish line. Yeah, it's funny, man. Like the deals, you know, we've lost bigger deals. We've lost probably more important deals earlier in the process. But it's the ones we've lost here or that didn't go through here that are the most painful, right? Yeah, yeah. It's easy, you know, when you're in negotiations, both people can walk away from the deal. We've had plenty of deals where we're in negotiations and we realize we can't really see eye to eye. We walk away and then we come back and do deals with those same people. So at the beginning of the deal, it's really easy. It's when you're about to close, especially when a few things have been transferred, that it can become pretty sticky. So this is a crucial point. Everybody focuses on how do I find the best deal? And you know how do I do due diligence on, on the best deal? But when you get to this transfer part, this is where rubber beats the road and you're about to become the owner of this thing. And you know this is an important place to focus. Absolutely, man. Before we get into it, we do have three phases we're going to cover in this episode. Before we get into that, though, we do have our listener love section. And we do have a bunch of questions actually from Leora. She left a couple of messages on SpeakPipe. So we're going to go ahead and play those messages and have people listen. And then we'll go ahead and respond to those. Hi, Justin and Ace. This is Leora. Love your show. Thanks so much. I left a review on iTunes. This is on March 31st, so hopefully we'll post soon. Okay. First for Justin, FBA sellers cannot collect affiliate commission on their own products. So you mentioned the ideal of double dipping if you had an Amazon FBA and affiliate site, and it's not allowed in terms of services. Not only can you not collect affiliate commissions on your own purchases, but neither can your family and friends use your affiliate code supposedly to for you to get commissions on those. So I'm sure they can't track all of that, but basically that's in there. So that model is not, that's not a part an option of that model. Okay, so on to questions. I have four and I'll see if I can say them quickly. Hopefully you can get to some of them on upcoming shows. My question is what averages are you seeing on AdSense RPMs? I know that it'll depend on the industry, but I'm wondering how radically they typically vacillate. This is for page views, RPM per page views, basically the payment rate. Ours vacillates considerably and I'm just wondering if that's normal and how you can work to improve that or how we can work to improve it. 
Question two, for building out site, you're starting from scratch. What is your recommendation on the best source for learning the basics of building a WordPress site? Example, you know, like a total WordPress newbie. Question three, have you seen sites that do well monetizing using one or more of the major affiliate networks, such as Rakuten, formerly Linkshare, or ShareASale? These are harder to implement than Amazon, but for certain niche sites, could be more profitable with higher payouts. So I'm wondering if you guys have done any sites, any of those affiliate links embedded, and if so, if you've used the API model, which seems to allow for the ads to rotate through the affiliates approved companies. So I'm really interested in learning about that. If you know more, please share. And number four, last question for now is, do you see successful sites monetizing via direct ads from brands? So it seems a highly trafficked site, for instance, could do better in direct advertising by relevant brands as far as establishing a steady contract or a steady monthly rate. It does seem to be a harder road as far as making lots of calls and doing legwork in that way. But I'm wondering if you guys have seen this model at work and if so, if it's been successful. I don't think that that would preclude using AdSense or even Amazon as well. But so for instance, if you were an auto parts affiliate site or an auto parts niche site, then to have an auto dealer advertise directly, whether you see any of those kinds of things happening. Okay, that's it. Thanks so much. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But we're going to get to not just some of your questions. We're going to answer all of your questions on this episode. All right. So let's get into the first one, you know, where she was saying that you can't buy from your own affiliate site. Absolutely. You can't buy from your own affiliate site. Neither can your friends or family. I think the idea the strategy though, is to have people outside of yourself. You're not buying from your own affiliate site. I, I know that's definitely against terms of service. So if you're setting it up and other people are buying from the affiliate site and then ultimately buying the FBA product, why can you not earn the affiliate commission on that affiliate site? And even if, even if like there was uh, some miscommunication there, it doesn't make any sense to me that you can't set up a separate legal entity like an LLC or S corp, whatever, and have that S corp, you know, run the FBA and another one run the affiliate site. So I, I think there are probably legal structures that are around that, even if you're saying that even still you can't do an affiliate site to FBA. So I wasn't saying you buy your own or your family buys products from your affiliate site to get a discount or anything like that, other parties. And even if that were a problem, I think you could get around it with LLCs. Yeah, and I remember the episode where we mentioned this and we were talking about a lot of different strategies. So I'm sure you know we glossed over it and that could have been misunderstood, but definitely can't, you know, try to skin the system. You can't try to buy stuff yourself, you know, same with AdSense. You're not going through and clicking the ads yourself, just all that stuff. And as these companies are getting better and better, they're really tracking everything on a pretty deep level as far as where the person's located and connections to you and just all those things. So you want to be extra careful when it comes to anything like that. But in my experience, and we both know a guy who's doing some things where he's taking the affiliate site and switching over to FBA and kind of using the strategy that we mentioned. So that part is something that right now is working. That's right. And then the second point was, uh, how much does AdSense RPM vacillate? She was saying that hers changes quite a bit and it changes often. I mean, for anyone that's new to this, RPM is a combined metric that includes both CPC or cost per click and click-through rate or CTR. 
So, you know, if one of those changes, the RPM is going to change. If both of them change drastically in one direction, it could change drastically. So I think what she needs to do is take a look at both CPC and CTR, see which one is changing more, and that will help narrow down the problem. If it's CPC, it could be that competitive advertiser coming in, driving the price or the cost per click up. And then, you know, bouncing out or maybe they only operate on weekdays, something like that. If it's CTR, there might be a big variance in the competitor ads and how clickable they are. So some ads are more clickable than others. And depending on how large your site is, you can actually remove certain ads from being shown there. And if that's the case, then you can have those removed. You wouldn't do it on a small site, but on a much larger site, it would make sense. Yeah, this is something that, you know, it's interesting she brings it up. And, you know, so the deals that are in our portfolio that are generating income from AdSense here in the last probably four months have been going up and down quite a bit, which is is really something new. So I'm sure our deals aren't in the same niche. So it could also be that, you know, Google's always testing and changing things and trying to improve things from their perspective. But I've seen, you know, one month, it's really, really crazy income for the site compared to kind of historical income. And then other months, it goes down way below. And then the very next month, it's back up again. And that didn't, you know, I've got sites that I've had for six years So there could be something that they're doing some testing or some things on their end that are causing uh, temporary kind of unsteadiness in the income. Yeah, maybe something behind the scenes with Google AdSense or something. The next question she had was, you know, what are the best sites or what are the best courses for learning how to build WordPress sites for a total newbie? Now, I can say for if you're looking to build monetized sites, authority sites, niche sites, that kind of thing, you can really check out nichepursuits.com or Longtail Pro, it's actually a tool, but you can check out Longtail University. It's by the same guy, Spencer Hawes. And Longtail Pro University like, will take you step-by-step step on building a monetized site from scratch. So that'll kind of give you the whole kit and caboodle of the monetized site thing. Now, if you're looking for like the really basic WordPress stuff, someone who's like just a total beginner, I'm not sure, honestly. What I would do is I'd go check out Udemy and then look at the reviews and then kind of the level of skill, look for something that I felt comfortable with and and kind of program that I felt comfortable with and start there. Yeah, I think that's the best place to start. Uh, The other question was, is there a variance between the different affiliate companies? Yes, there are definitely variants in terms of the affiliate companies, but I say even more so it's between the offers. So... You know, you could have one offer at an affiliate company and another offer from a different company through the same affiliate and have wildly different results in terms of your earnings. And that has to do with just a whole bunch of things, right? The product, the product matched to your content, you know, how well they're converting the client to go over to their product. So there's a ton of things that go into that. Now, ultimately, you know, you just need to test through this. So you're going to need to test different products. And there's no It's not like you can say, oh, this affiliate is better or this offer is necessarily better. Each site is going to have an individual offer that will be better. Some of the larger sites that I've seen are very complicated in their multivariate testing. And they do have uh, APIs and they have automated testing and they'll like do round robins through different products. For most sites, for most people that are building, that's not really something you're going to deal with. For kind of like the really aggressive niches, like weight loss pills and stuff like that can get really, really tough. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to these things, I've found that there's a lot more variance, like you mentioned, in the actual companies than there is in the networks. So the offers a lot of times are going to be the same. Obviously, you know, you're going to very similar landing pages, conversion, all those are going to be the same. The network really just 
has the technology. So you may have a variance in the percentage that you're getting, but I would pay a lot more attention to the in the company that you're sending traffic to and their conversion rate and their payouts than the particular network. Yeah, and the last question she had, do successful sites do well by advertising directly with brands? And the idea here would be to skip AdSense, skip affiliates, and go directly to the source, go directly to the products, the manufacturers, the advertisers, and see if they'll work out a deal directly. Now, yes, I mean, you can definitely make more money this way. But, you know, as she mentioned, it's a lot harder to implement, right? You have to get on the phone and call them up and, you know, basically sell them on advertising with you if they haven't reached out to you directly. This makes zero sense for smaller or newer sites. If you're just starting out, it's way easier to just use the third party in their affiliate program. A good example would be, you know, I have a Quinn Street, let's say I have a lead generation site in the education niche, right? It's much easier for me to use Quinn Street than to reach out to all these different, you know, vocational schools and tech schools and try to get them to advertise with me and pay me directly. I'd rather just use a Quinn Street who is taking a cut, but it makes it a hell of a lot easier for me to just do it. As you grow and as you get bigger, yeah, I think you should explore direct advertisements with the brands directly. And the reason is, is that a lot of times they're going to be less worried about the ROI than they are about just getting their brand in front of the right audience. An example, we have some mobile apps for sale on our site right now that they make their money through the direct advertising. And the direct advertisers are just small local businesses. The apps are like sports in a particular market, like a small local market. So the advertisers are fans anyway that are happy to just kind of get their company out there on something that they use and are kind of involved in. So they're willing to pay, you know, whatever, 50 bucks a month or 80 bucks a month or whatever, just for the brand opportunity, not necessarily for the direct leads they get from it. So from your perspective as a publisher, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a great deal for you, especially if you can sell them on branding. It's just a bit more complicated. So you want to wait until it actually makes sense to do it. Yeah. One of the other examples, we had a site that was in the P2P kind of crowdfunding real estate space. And it was, uh, you know, basically just a, a blog that kind of reviewed the different options and went into some detail about how those businesses operated. Truthfully, the amount of traffic coming to the site wasn't a huge amount. The business that they would have been getting, you know, it wouldn't have made money on an advertising basis or even affiliate basis. But those companies felt like, hey, this is a place that we need to be if we're getting into this space. And so, you know, with that site, it was a little bit easier because if you can get into the right niche, and I'm sure it's the same even with some of these mobile apps, they're coming to you yeah. because they feel like we need to be there. I would really hesitate if I bought a deal and my plan was to go out and try to sell the advertising myself. Yeah, you're buying into an unknown. Like, I don't know how well I'm going to be able to sell it. I don't know how interesting it is as advertisers. If I was basing my business plan on doing that on a purchase, yeah, no, I wouldn't. No, 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 I wouldn't do that. Unless that, that model had been proven like to some degree. Even then, I'd be a little skeptical. I'd rather, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd buy based on that model. Oh, anyway, I hope, Laura, that was helpful. I hope we got you some value out of that. If you have any follow-up questions, feel free to ask. We've got another question, Ace, from Dave O, and he had a question about strategic acquisitions. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he basically said, you know, I understand strategic 
acquisitions, we're talking physical properties. So if I own a dry cleaner and I buy another one, I have two locations, they can share expenses and back end processes. That makes sense. But how does it work in the online space? He was wondering, if I own catfood.com and I buy cattoy.com, I have related content, that's clear. But how do I execute on a plan to like really bring the syn- I hate the word the synergies together on this? He was wondering, do you centralize content on one domain? Do you link across all sites? And do you put guest posts across sites? These types of things. So I'd say, first off, I would not try to centralize the content onto a single domain. I think linking across sites and guest posts, maybe not even that subtle, but putting guest posts across the sites I think is important. I think other ways you can do it, if they both have email lists, you can cross-sell products from one to another. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you can upsell. So if someone gets to the cart and you're able to upsell them a toy on the cat food side or you're able to upsell food on the cat toy side, I think that makes a lot of sense too. So there are cross-sell and upsell opportunities there that I think make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think the difference between where he was coming from and where we would focus on the deal is just it's not as much about content and really like the guest posting is good. But where you're going to get the most transactions is, you know, what you mentioned, Justin, like having that upsell at the end. I mean, really, we would focus a lot just on the emails like, hey, promoting this other product. You bought this now buy this. The other thing that I would add to that is doing some retargeting. So putting the, the retargeting pixel, you know that both people are interested in, you know, cats in general. You're able to upsell across brands and promote other affiliate offers and, and all kinds of uh, neat things. So that would be the other thing I would do. Yeah, retarded pixel. That's a slick one, buddy. I like that. I like that, Ace. That's a good one. Yeah, you can target them on Facebook and, and that kind of thing. That's great. Another thing too, you know, let's just say that this is an eco these are e-commerce businesses. And let's say I own catfood.com and I and it's a million dollar business and I bought cattoy.com, which is a hundred thousand dollar business. Well my million dollar business, you know, I've already got shelf space, right, for my e-commerce goods with like Shipwire or something or, you know, wherever I have all of my products, it doesn't cost much more to share that shelf, right? So basically, I can bring in inventory. I've already got the customer service in place, you know, the people handling chat or email or voice support. So it's a lot easier to buy a product business that's in the same niche because I've already got all the kind of the back end processes, the back end people in place as well. That's very similar to, I think, an offline business, but I think there are some unique differences that I hope kind of make sense now that we've answered this. Anyway, Dave, I hope that was really helpful. All right, buddy, let's get into the website migration and turnover. As we said before, there are really three phases in this process, right? The first phase we're going to call the transfer period. This is when the money is sent from the buyer and, and the seller and buyer transfer all assets and accounts, etc. The second phase is when the buyer acknowledges receipt and performs the final inspections. And the third phase is when the buyer signs off and the funds are transferred to the seller. So we're going to go through each phase and then we're going to talk about you know, what happens when things go to hell in any process during this deal. <laughs> Great. Well, let's get into the first phase. You know, this is where you're in that transfer period. And the very first thing is the money transfer. So the biggest rule in all of this is you really never want either party to hold both the business and the website. And, you know, I encourage people, if you're not using a broker, you want to use some kind of escrow type of entity. 
Now, on really small deals, that may not be necessary. But, you know, it's, it's really your comfortability because small is relative. You know, yeah. $5,000 deal may not be a very big deal to me. But for somebody else, it's their life savings. And it's, hey, we got to go figure out some kind of escrow because I can't take a risk of, you know, you having the site and my money at the same time. That's right. Ace. I can't stress your point hard enough. Like, you know, neither party should end up with both the money and control over the cider business at any point like that's a horrible idea that's where the leverage is lost right and we've come across a couple of deals where one party refused to give up their piece until they received the other and as brokers we just we would never let that happen and we had to kick deals that we thought were done man but that you know like one party was just being outrageous about it and putting the other party at too much risk i think that's really really important and you know you can use a broker like we do it for our customers but you can also use an attorney most attorneys are bonded and licensed and can hold money in escrow you can also use a third party escrow service that's out there one thing i hear sometimes ace is someone's like you know look i'll give you 30% and then you give me this piece and i'll give you another 30% and you give me this piece the problem is is that you know, giving part of the money and having partial control doesn't matter. Like if I control the domain, I you know basically can control everything. So that's not terribly helpful. You know, it could be recreated. You can still get screwed pretty badly that way. So I wouldn't do the partial ever because again, that's just putting you in a bad position. Always use someone else holding the money and doing the transfer for you. And this is when we say partial payment here, we're not saying, you know, it's some kind of holdback or anything like that. What happens in some of these deals is you'll get a buyer and they really may not have all the money yet or they're trying. They realize at the very end, I'm not very I don't feel very comfortable or very protected. So they may say, oh, I know I'm supposed to pay 50,000. But what if, you know, I just get pay you 15 and, you know, I get a part of the site or I get access to the WordPress or, or whatever. And like you mentioned, Justin, at the end of the day, there's one thing that matters, and it's the domain and who has ownership of it. Because you can throw up a WordPress site or even an e-commerce or whatever and start to send that traffic to the new site. So if you're in control of the domain, you control that business. So that brings us to the domain transfer. The very first thing you want to do as the buyer is find out where the domain is registered. Personally, I've got, you know, a lot of different accounts. I love just having instead of trying to put transfer all of the domains into a particular registrar, I like to just get the domain from the registrar that they're already using because it makes the process a lot easier. So you can find out where they have the domain registered. You can set up a free account. Every one of the registrars allows you to create your own free account. And then, you know, they give you your user ID, your customer number, all that stuff. You get that to the seller and you can begin that domain transfer process. And I'd love to get your opinion on that, Justin. Just do you really encourage people to just use the same registrar or does it not really matter to you guys? Oh, 100%. Yeah, same registrar, man. So much easier. So you don't want any delays. You don't want any problems. And there can be a lock on transferring the domain from registrar to registrar. So if you're using the same registrar, just for example, GoDaddy to GoDaddy, it's instant. It's really easy. They make that a really easy process. They don't like you going to their competitors. So yeah, setting up the free account by doing that, and it's the much better route 
route to take. We absolutely prefer it. It's easy. Later on, if you want to transfer it somewhere else or do whatever you want there, that's fine. But just to get the deal done, go with whoever they're using. Yeah, and once you get that, it becomes really easy. I mean, I think a lot of people feel like, oh, man, buying a website is really complicated. But bottom line, you know, you make the domain transfer easy by having the, the same using the same company, then once you get that transferred, it's kind of a matter of pointing the web hosting in the right direction with the name servers. And voila, you are the owner if you own that hosting as well. Yeah. Once they've, they've transferred the domain to your account again, it's GoDaddy, GoDaddy. It's instant. If it's Namecheap, it's Namecheap. It's instant. And you'll own the domain. You now have control of the domain and you can start to get everything set up once the name servers are pointed in the right direction. By the way, I'm not a tech guy. I know like the basics here. So you want more details? I am not your guy. I'm guessing you're ace. You're not the guy here either, but you do it. So you're like, you force yourself to know it a bit, right? Exactly, exactly. So I've got my web guys. And that's why I can't say voila, because they just say, hey, everything looks good. We're the owners now. And we're good to go. <laughs> yeah. And this, so for me, it is like magic. <laughs> yeah. This whole time, and the money's held, right? So it's not like you're at risk or the seller has it or something, and you're hoping that they don't screw you, which I think is the most important piece. All right. So let's talk about the website transfer process a bit. When it comes to the, the website, you know, the other side of this, like I mentioned with the domain, is where that website is sitting. And that's going to be with the whole web hosting company. You know, you can set up your own web hosting company. Again, personally, this is something to keep in mind for sellers out there. If you're using some random off the wall domain registrar or uh, hosting, that can be a little bit of a pain just for the person to have to keep up with that. So when it comes to web hosting, I know this is a place that people don't necessarily use the, the same web hosting as the seller, but I try as much as possible to use the same company. And it's kind of a pain if it's some random web hosting company. So we try to open up an account at the same company and then we transfer the website to our hosting account, which again can be instant if you're using the same company. Yeah, another thing you do too is sign up for the web hosting account there. It's the same company that makes it easy. Or you can just actually take it over, right? Especially if it's like one of those kind of rare, odd accounts. If they have no other sites there, then you can just take over their account. You own the account from now on, you change the password, change all the information, and you're now the owner. So that's another way to go about it. And we've seen that done with like some e-commerce sites and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. All right, and then you're going to want to copy to your web host account, the website files, website database, and any other settings. Create an email address in your web host if you're using that. Make sure that the name servers in your domain point to the ones provide the web host, and then create backups on your server. That's all the tech stuff that the tech guys tell us. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I think creating the setups, the backups is one of the things that you do want to pay attention to. You know, we had a site that we had to go back and, and you get restarted here recently, and it's good to have those. Outside of this process, this is where you're looking at the other accounts as well. So you're getting the access to the any social sites that they have, the logins, transferring that. If they're supplier accounts, you know, sometimes they're actual accounts that they use, you know, merchant accounts, mail lists like Aweber, MailChimp, GetResponse, all of that stuff you want to start to get access to. So yeah. you're either creating your own accounts or getting access to the seller's username and password. Yeah, a lot of times it's easier to just take the accounts over and then change all the information. 
but that's only possible when they only have one account in there. So for example, if they have an Aweber account, but they have five different businesses that are using that same Aweber account, they're just not going to be able to do that to you. So you're going to set up your own. You're going to have to transfer all the data over. It's the same thing for inventory too. And you know, for any businesses that require inventory, you're going to have to transfer that inventory beforehand. And I think this is an interesting point is that during this transfer process, you're going to want to make sure that the transfer goes smoothly. So while they're transferring inventory to you or to your fulfillment center or whatever, you're going to want to make sure orders are still shipped. You're going to want to make sure that you have enough to kind of get on your feet while you get this new e-commerce business so you're not immediately having to make another order or that you're not running out of stock. And that's something you're going to need to determine before you actually you know, begin this transfer process or begin the actual deal. You're going to want to have that figured out beforehand. Yes, absolutely. And with all of this, the reason we go through this process with you is so you know what's coming and you can be prepared. All right, man. The second phase is also known as the inspection period, right? You've already agreed to buy the website. You know, this the deal's already done in terms of like both parties agreeing. And then there are two goals here, right? In the inspection period. Number one, you want to verify that you received everything that was agreed. Everything you talked about, you've got access to it, you've got control over, it is yours, it is in your hands and not theirs. The second goal is to verify that everything is substantially as advertised. As they said it would be, they said it was going to come with this, that, or the other. Make sure it came with this, that, or the other. And normally, this is a relatively a short period of time, but it's really important that you take your time to methodically dig through all this. So it may be that you have to drop your focus on other things for a couple of days and really dig into this to make sure you got everything. Yeah, it, when it comes to being sure before you release funds, it's smart business. You Sometimes the seller wants their money. They're going to rush you through this stuff. But you have to be the person to step back and say, okay, well, let me make sure and take your time. And some of this is just finessing the relationship with the seller, keeping them happy. Yeah, you don't want this to drag out, but you don't want to get shortchanged either, which is why it's important. So the first thing, goal number one, did you get everything? You can list and check off everything the seller agreed to provide either in the purchase agreement or in the emails, the communication you guys had back and forth. This would obviously, where applicable, include the domain, the website, the content, all the accounts that you need access to. It would include supplier introductions and contact info. It would include the employees' introductions, freelancer introductions, virtual assistant introductions, and their contact info. Any SOPs or documentation that comes along, guides, manuals, instructions, any digital products, any physical products, user IDs, passwords, and you should have all this documented so you know exactly what you need access to when you take over the business. Yeah, and I mean, really, it's not very, on most of these deals, it's not extremely complicated. If you have a list, you're taking notes even from this call, and you're checking off each one of these things, that's a big part of it. Outside of just making sure you have all the accounts, all that stuff is transferred, the other thing is verifying the metrics. You know, you want to go in now that you have access to everything, you're going to verify the sales. You know, maybe- yeah, this is the second goal, right? You want to verify all the information, the metrics, the quality of everything, make sure everything yeah. is as agreed. Yeah, yeah. And one thing to understand with this is that things may not be exactly 
the same. I know, you know, you and I, Justin, we worked on deals where the buyer gets in, they're like, oh, well, sales are 10% less than they were when you had it. <laughs> and it's like, okay, there could be a million reasons why. That does not mean that it's a scam or anything like that. So you have to understand that it's not going to be exactly the same, but, you know, you want it to be, in, you know, it might get concerned if it's 50%, 70%. Yeah. Dude, we just, just like a week or two ago, we had one where it was like 90% off or 95% yeah. off. Now that's yeah. a problem. And, you know, that's a problem. It, it wouldn't be a problem if it like maybe they sold three items a month and you could say okay well clearly it's off because not one item is sold <laughs> we're still waiting for one item so but that wasn't the case this is a deal where the affiliate was having problem i think the actual product creator they were having trouble they weren't getting the stuff through the affiliate the links were in place they were set up but there was some kind of problem on the affiliate side they didn't admit blame or anything but we started hammering about it they figured it out and all of a sudden it magically started working so there were a couple of days where nothing was going through and all parties were like, I mean, everyone was pro about it, but I was like, wow, what's going on here? Why? So you want to check for these things. It is important. 90, 95% off. Yeah, there's something wrong that needs to be looked into quickly. And a lot of the time, it ends up being some tech thing or, or something like that. And not necessarily that the business just changed within a couple of days. Yep. And then, you know, sometimes it can be off too because of seasonality, right? It could be a holiday or it could be you know, a positive holiday where your numbers are way up and you may be heading into like say the summer months, which are very, very big for the business. And so your numbers are up. You're like, Oh, I'm going to crush it. Well, no, you're just going to do okay. And then it's going to go down in the winter. So expect that. And you know, it could be sporadic sales. I mentioned before, if you're doing three sales a month, you may go a few days during the transfer process where you don't get any sales that should be expected, right? You still want to make sure everything's up and working and, and working correctly. The other thing you want to do is verify traffic, right? And by now you've had your analytics code and not the old analytics code on there. There's actually two lines of thinking. I'm interested in what your thoughts on here are, Ace. Do you have the seller keep Google Analytics up and get added to that Google Analytics account so that you have the history? Or do you prefer to start fresh with a new Google Analytics ID and then just keep the, that account open for as long as the seller does so you still have the old data. It depends on the site. So when it's uh, more of an organic type site and we're really tracking where all the traffic is coming from and trying to improve the SEO, I love to have the history. If it's, let's say, an e-commerce site and you know the traffic's coming in from CPC, we, we're paying for the traffic. You know, we may be doing pixels and, and that kind of thing to check out the conversion rate yeah. and those kinds of things. It's not as crucial to have access to that. So I may for a little while and then eventually put my tracking code on there. The worst is when you keep the Google Analytics as is. So you have like the whole history in the same account. And then eight months later, seller deletes it or whatever. You know, they're not really thinking about it. They're, oh, yeah, I'm done with that. No, no, I lost all my information. So, yeah, I, I think probably putting your own Google Analytics code, even though you'll have to look at separate accounts, you'll have the history, but it just won't be in the same analytics account. I guess that's better, though, because at least you'll control it moving forward. Yeah, and so, you know, there are other metrics, there are other in indicators, whatever was agreed on and generally understood, you're going to want to make sure that's happening. You're going to want to make sure that someone can go through the e-commerce product, that someone can actually go through the process, let's say a digital goods delivery, and they can go through and actually purchase it. So you might as well go through yourself and actually purchase it to make sure 
it's working. Sometimes, as you said, things get screwed up on the tech side, and but you know, due to no one's intentional fault, it's not working, and that would be bad for you to go six weeks and realize you're not making any money. And now for the final stage, stage three. This is when you sign off on the deal. Yeah, you're going to notify escrow or the attorney or your broker. You're going to say, look, yep, everything looks good. Let's move forward with this. Let's go ahead and get this deal done. And then that will allow the broker or the escrow company or whatever to pay out the seller. And the deal is finally complete for all parties. One of the things you want to make do, uh, you're going to want to do too, is just make sure that if you have an agreement with the seller to do some kind of training or turnover, that you get in contact with them, that you hold them that agreement, especially if you need it, if you're new, and they agreed to walk you through this and that, get in contact with them, make sure that they're willing to do that. You've really lost your leverage at that point. And so that's why sometimes people will do like a hold back, they'll wait 30 days to pay them the rest of the money or whatever. But on like a smaller content side or whatever, it's, it's generally not that big of a deal. And, and for the most part, Ace, most sellers want to help. I mean, they're not yeah, jerks. They really they'll, they'll give you some phone support. They'll give you some email support. They want you to get up to speed. The thing about this stage is the work that you do before this point to make sure that they're clear on what to expect. The times where you have a seller that's not very happy is when you don't say, hey, I need a 10-day inspection period. You know, I'm expecting for this whole process to close in the next two weeks. If you expect them to just understand that and don't negotiate that from the beginning, then there'll be a lot of kind of annoyance and they're not going to want to give you the support because they don't feel like you kept your end of the bargain. So the key to getting support and help is really at the beginning of the process uh, more than at the end. Yeah, and some of these, you know, it depends. Like we said, the content sites or whatever, just like a you know, Amazon affiliate site. I mean, there's not that much to it. It's not that complicated. But we, we said throughout this season, we've talked about how important it is that you're cool with the seller, right? That there is some kind of at least some kind of working relationship. You guys understand each other. This is especially true for businesses that require some work. Let's say it's a, some type of service-based business and you need like SOPs, you're gonna need training, you need to train your team, you need their team to talk to your new team. I mean, it can get pretty complicated and you're gonna have to have a pretty good working relationship. So being cool even after this whole deal is done so that yeah, everything can continue running smoothly is really important, especially, you know, we think inventory, you think of making sure that, you know, all the orders are still being delivered and, and that kind of thing. So, all right, man, we've done the deal. Everything's smooth, everyone's paid, everyone's got their, you know, new business and they're ready to move forward. Let's talk what happens when things aren't so smooth, when things go bad, when deals are backed out of or should be backed out of. Let's talk about these, you know, odd situations a bit. Yeah. I I mean, if you do deals long enough, you're going to end up in these situations where, you know, you get to the end, maybe the sales aren't the way they're supposed to be. Maybe, you know, you get to the end and sales are down 90%. You check everything out and nobody can figure out why just to click the traffic on or whatever it takes to make it work or traffic's down in a huge way. When you get to that situation, as a buyer, the first thing to understand is that it is totally fair to walk away if you haven't released the funds. So you do have that inspection period and you get to the end. You know, I always tell people the deal isn't done. You know, just because you get a contract on a deal, just because you even put money into escrow on the deal, the deal is definitely 
not done. You still, as a buyer, have the right to check those things out. And that's why we do that. That's right. Once a seller gets paid, the deal is done. Like that's yes. it. Sellers paid. Now I've talked to sellers where you know, there were still problems or whatever. The sellers totally paid out really uh, no contractual or no agreement to like help out with it. But even, you know, three weeks later is still helping the buyer out because they're being cool and they had a cool relationship. But yeah, once the seller's paid, this is, you're out. So if you have any issues, this all has to be, happen before the seller gets paid. So some of the things that can go bad, I mean, the sales of the traffic are significantly different than what the seller was claiming, right? So like we said, if it's 10% off, 20% off, whatever, above or below, whatever, that's not a big deal. If we're talking, you know, 40% off, 60% off, 80% off now, it's interesting. I mean, you're going to have to take a close look at that and say, hey, look, I think something's wrong. And the earlier you speak up, the better. So if you wait, you know, a week or something and the seller's been just hounding you, that's bad. If you're telling them kind of like as you go along exactly where it's out, you know, they're going to be there to help you as will the broker if you use a broker. Yeah, it's so huge just to be in communication. You know, a lot of people disappear after they buy a site. Three months later, it has issues. And then they come back to the seller. And then, you know, the truth is from that seller's perspective, you have taken full responsibility. They haven't talked to you. You are the owner of that site. So if you have that problem three months down the line, it's like, dude, you can't come back to me at this point. So I try to keep in touch with the sellers that we do deals with. Some of the other things that you once you get in and, and you start to have issues with is the, if the seller doesn't continue to keep their end of the bargain as far as operations go. So on some of these websites, they're not affiliate sites. They're not AdSense sites. And you get in and they really are supposed to help you operate for a certain period of time outside of just support and training. And that can be a really big issue. And what I tell buyers is you have to be prepared to take on full responsibility once you release those funds. So if you don't have a hold back, then you need to negotiate a longer inspection period. But, you know, you've got the inspection period, which is for the site itself. We talked in the other episode just about having a hold back. And that's where you get into making sure they do the training and the support. And, you know, just so that there is some monetary encouragement outside of just having a great relationship with them. Here's the situation. So, you know, owner is selling the business. The developer works part time for the business. Seller doesn't want to tell the developer that he's selling the business. So you're in an awkward position as a buyer. Like that has to be, you know, generally it's worked out in a contract. Like I will take less or this, this is determined you know, by making sure that the developer comes on board. And here's what happens if it doesn't. But if it doesn't, right, you need to be able to follow through with whatever the contract states or at least make sure you have another developer on board to get started. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to take over the deal, right? And the deal is dead. So these are things you really want to work out beforehand. It generally, these things with employees and contractors generally is. But if it isn't, you need to quickly look for a backup plan or you're going to lose the deal. Yeah. The other thing that I'll tell you is just you got to check out every part of the deal. We had a deal recently where the quality in the product from the company that was drop shipping the product just was going down. And so, you know, our client ended up doing was just switching to a new supplier, but that was a lot more work 
that could have been avoided and really pushed onto the seller during the inspection period, but it didn't come out until a little bit later. And so fortunately, he was able to get that seller to help him with the transfer and do a lot of that legwork because there was that holdback. So some things you just aren't going to be able to get in an inspection period to make sure that, you know, everything is lining up. I mean, there was just no way to know what was going on with that product and what was going to be happening, you know, a month, two months, three months down the line with that supplier. That's right, man. All right, let's do a quick wrap up on this website migration and turnover episode. Number one, you need to make sure that both parties are very clear on the process before proceeding. Make sure that you understand the steps and what's going to happen and what's going to happen when. You're going to want to, again, make sure that neither you or the seller ever have both the domains of the site and the money. Obviously, if you had to choose one, you should have both, right, rather than the seller. But but honestly, neither party should have both the money and the site or the domain, that's a really bad idea. Number three, you don't want to let the business go dark for any significant period of time. So the seller needs to keep it running smoothly. They also need to turn it over to you smoothly so you can continue running it smoothly. And that means making sure you have enough inventory, making sure you have the staff that are coming on board and make sure everything's good to go there so you can take it over and run it, you know, keep a smooth transition. Yeah, one of the, you want to make sure that you have the time. And this is a tough one, even for me. And I do these deals full time, but it takes time to really properly inspect a site. Before you release those funds, you want to make sure you're going through this process, but it does take time. So make sure that you clear your schedule, that you kind of block out some time to focus on this and you can get really comfortable that everything that you agreed on with the seller is being delivered and has been delivered and you can be comfortable once you release those funds. Awesome, man. Yeah. And just a quick note for our listeners. This is the second to our last episode for season two. Yeah. We'll be back with our final episode next week. We're going to be talking about what to do with the site now that you've migrated, now that you own it, you've had the seller paid out. Now what the hell do you do? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about different plans and approaches you can take to really grow out and expand the business beyond the purchase. Thanks for listening to the Web Equity Show. Now is your chance to be a part of the action. Go to www.webequityshow.com slash gift and send us your business acquisition or exit question and have it answered on the show. 